You're listening to the Matthew Sermon Series at Sojourn East. In this series, we're following Jesus as He calls us to take on His yoke and experience true discipleship. That same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea. And great crowds gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat down. And the whole crowd stood on the beach, and he told them many things in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground, where they did not have much soil, and they immediately sprang up, since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched, and since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. And other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. Then the disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, good morning. Peace be with you. If you're visiting with us, we are about halfway through a two and a half year journey through Matthew's gospel, and we're jumping back in to the gospel today, and we come to one of the most famous stories or parables that Jesus ever taught. And I think one of the challenges we face in coming to this text is that most of us are familiar with it. If you grew up in church, if you've been in Bible study, you've probably heard this taught on before, and it's very tempting for us to just jump to the end and start asking or talking or wrestling through, what type of soil am I? Am I the the path, the rocky soil, the thorny soil, the good soil? And while that's a good and important question to ask, if we jump straight there, we miss out on both the weightiness of this text, but also we miss out on the strangeness of this text. When Jesus first taught this parable, the meaning wasn't obvious to the disciples. That's why they ask him. And the disciples, they were a little dense, but they weren't that dense. Jesus, he, he teaches this, gives a short story, and it's very confusing for them. And I think it's important for us to kind of get in and say, what, what, what was going on here? And why was this so challenging and strange and confusing for them? Because that's when we start to really press into the real weight and gravity of what Jesus is teaching here. So what I want to do this morning, Michael just read the first 10 verses. We're actually going to read the work through the whole section, verses 1 to 23 of chapter 13. And the structure is really, really important. That's why I want to do that. But I want to ask you, uh, to the best of your ability, to set aside what you know about this passage so that you might hear it uh, fresh. You might hear it the way they first heard it. You might hear it in all of its weightiness, just as the disciples heard it 2,000 years ago. And before we jump in, will you join me in prayer? Father, we know your word. In your word, you tell us that your word stands forever. And that your word is a sword, that it cuts, it pierces, it divides, but it also heals. I pray this morning as we come to your word and put ourselves under your word, knowing your spirit is in our midst, I pray that he will bring conviction, but he will also bring clarity that we will have ears to hear 
and eyes to see. Lord, we are marketed to all week long. Stuff is spun, news is spun, information is spun. Everyone's coming to us with an agenda. Sometimes it gets overwhelming trying to sift through it all. We thank you for the gift of your word that when we come here, we're getting pure truth, truth that we desperately need, truth that has the power to convict, yes, but also to heal, and to cleanse us, and to strengthen us. So I pray that my words would be pleasing to you, would honor you, and I pray that for all of us, you would give us understanding as we come to this text. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. So chapter 13 begins, Matthew says, that same day. And so we've got to go back to really understand this parable. We've got to understand something of the context. And I want to give a brief flyover of Matthew up to this point. From chapters 1 to 9, Matthew, he gives us Jesus' lineage. He tells us what Jesus' mission is, about how Jesus announced the kingdom of God, the reign of God is here. Repent, turn, and, and enter in. And then Jesus gives a, the most famous sermon ever, the Sermon on the Mount, chapters 5 to 7. Then he does a bunch of powerful miracles. And so the first nine chapters, it's Matthew's painting a picture of who Jesus is. And then we get to chapter 10, and things start to change. Jesus tells his disciples the work I've been doing. You're going to join me in it, because it's not just me doing it. You're going to be a part. And then he warns them, but you need to beware. You're going to go out, and you're going to face opposition in my name. You're going to be persecuted in my name. Then we get to chapter 12 and conflict. That's when the conflict really starts to heat up. Jesus gets into a very public, very sharp argument with the Pharisees. And it all centered around the fact that Jesus and his disciples, they were walking through a field on the Sabbath and they were plucking heads of grain and they were eating them. Now the Pharisees said that that's work, that's a violation of, of the Sabbath, and so they're accusing him of dishonoring God's law, breaking God's law. And so in response, Jesus goes into a synagogue, and he finds a man with a withered hand, and he says, is it lawful or unlawful for me to heal on the Sabbath? Now, according to their rules, it's probably unlawful, but Jesus tells the man, stretch out your hand. Now, the Pharisees didn't see this as a wonderful, miraculous healing act of God. They saw this as Jesus provoking them. And so they become enraged. They say he belongs to Satan. And then in verse 14 of chapter 12, we're told, this is a real turning point in the gospel. We're told that the Pharisees went out and plotted how they might kill Jesus. By the end of chapter 12, Jesus' own mother and brothers come to confront him and try to talk some sense into him. And... That's how chapter 12 ends. He says, who are my mother and who are my brothers? And then Matthew tells us 13, 1, that same day. So there's all of this conflict and tension brewing. That same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea. And great crowds gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat down. And the whole crowd stood on the beach. And he told them many things in parables, saying, a sower went out to sow. So he still has massive crowds wanting to hear him, and so his disciples put him on a boat, push him a little off the shore so that his voice will carry out over the water, and everyone's 
I'm sure they're intrigued by what Jesus is going to say. They feel the tension rising. They feel the conflict. What's he going to say? And then, really for the first time in Matthew's gospel, Jesus tells a story on the edge of their seat. And he says, a farmer went out to sow. Now, this was a very common, ordinary thing in that day. There's a chance that from the boat, Jesus is watching a farmer sow in the field. He says, a farmer went out to sow. It seems very ordinary. But then the story gets kind of strange. Jesus tells us that as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground, where they did not have much soil. And immediately they sprang up, since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched. And since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Now, the reason this is a little strange is the farmer here seems to be throwing, uh, he's got this bag of seeds, and he seems to be throwing the seeds everywhere. He's throwing it on the path. He sees a patch of rocks, and he throws some seed onto the the rocky ground, he sees a bunch of weeds, and he's like, oh, what the heck, let's give it a try. And he throws some seed there. And so he's either very, very careless, or he's very generous. But he's out, tossing everywhere. And so knowing that most of the places he's throwing the seed, the, the seeds will never mature into a fruitful plant, but he still does it anyway. He just throws the seed out. And... Then he tells us that other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some 60, and some 30. Now in that day, a harvest of tenfold, that was a good harvest. Twentyfold was a great harvest. Thirtyfold was like the harvest of a lifetime. But Jesus is saying that there's something about these seeds that the sower's sowing, that when it hits good soil, it produces a crop that's really beyond comprehension. It's astronomical in size. They're like magic seeds that when they hit the right soil, they blow up. And then he finishes and he says, if you have ears, listen. (laughs) The disciples, the disciples are confused. Jesus hasn't told them who the farmer is, what the seeds are, what the ground is. He just told this strange little story about about a farmer. And so they come and they say to Jesus, why do you speak in parables? They're really, really confused. And you can imagine for everyone else that that was there. They were so excited. You know, the friend brought one of their friends and you got to hear this guy. He's the best preacher ever. And then he gets up and tells this thing and no one understands. And it's like, even Jesus can't hit a home run every sermon. Like that was was just okay. Uh, They're like, what are you, why are you teaching in these stories, Jesus? And the reason they're asking this is because up until now, Jesus' teaching has been pretty clear and straightforward. That doesn't mean it hasn't been challenging or convicting, But the meaning has been pretty obvious in everything that he's been teaching. And I mean, it was his amazing teaching matched with his miracles that caused all of these crowds to flock to him. He spoke as one with authority. He's doing miracles and he's telling people that God is not detached, that the kingdom of God is at hand. He's telling them that God is not a distant or cold God, but he is a father who knows the number of hairs on your head. 
And even a sparrow can't fall to the ground apart from his will. He gives them this vision of God that is expansive and so encouraging. It's like water in the desert. And then here, everything changes. He tells a bizarre story about a careless farmer and his bag of magic seeds. What gives? Why the parables, Jesus? And Jesus responds... He basically gives two answers to this question. And this is in verses 11 to 17 of Matthew 13. And I'm going to tell you, it's a challenging section of scripture. His answer, why do you teach in parables? It's challenging. And it's challenging because the first reason he teaches in parables, he says, is to conceal the truth from some people. In verse 13, he says, this is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Now, normally, speakers, preachers, pastors, we use uh, uh, stories to illustrate points and drive them home. And you know, a good story can really tie a sermon together. And it, it seems like that's what Jesus is saying here at first, that he's using stories to make his teaching more accessible and understandable. But then right after he says this, he quotes a really challenging passage from Isaiah 6, a passage we looked at together just two weeks ago, where God's talking about the hardness of people's hearts. Jesus says, quoting, You will indeed hear, but you will never understand. You will indeed see, but you will never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their eyes they can barely see and hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with them with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. What he's saying here is these people, he's talking about a large number of people who, who they don't actually want to hear what he's saying, and so he's going to start teaching in parables, not to make his teaching more accessible, but less. Not to make it easier to understand, but harder to understand. Why? Well, we're at a turning point in the gospel, and up till now, Jesus has been surrounded by crowds of people who are enthralled with his miracles. They just love him. Do another one, Jesus. But when he starts teaching about the nature of the kingdom of God, about his absolute authority over everything, that's when the people start to back off. Like they want the miracles, they like the miracles, they don't like the Lord and Master piece. They, they, they want a, magici- a magician, they want a show, they don't want a savior. They like it when Jesus, you know, gives the heartwarming teaching, they don't like it when he gets political. And so he says, okay, well, from now on, I'm going to teach in parables. I'm going to make my teaching harder for you to understand, not easier for you to understand. You see, the parables, they filter people out. They filter out the people who want Jesus to meet their felt needs, but don't want to experience true healing. And he's saying, basically, by rejecting my teaching, you've lost the privilege of hearing plain teaching from me ever again. So the parables, they conceal the truth to some, 
But there's a second reason he teaches in parables. It's to conceal the truth from, from some, but actually it's to reveal the truth and deepen the understanding of the truth in others. Verse 11, he tells the disciples, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. Now, first reading, this sounds kind of like Jesus saying, the rich are going to get richer, and the poor are going to get poor. And that's kind of what he's saying in regards to those who are coming to him to learn. He's saying, you, if you come to me and you're interested and you want to learn and you want to understand, I'm going to give you even more understanding. I'm going to deepen your knowledge of me. I'm going to reveal even more secrets of the kingdom of God. But to those who are coming, they're not really listening. They're not paying attention to those who are stopping their ears. I'm going to tell them stories so they can't even understand me anymore. He basically is saying they've lost the privilege of hearing direct truth, so now I'm going to start speaking in riddles. He goes on talking about his disciples. He said, blessed are your eyes for they see and your ears for they hear. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see and did not see it and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. So while he's concealing from some, he's revealing to others and he's saying to those of you that the truth is being revealed to, no one's ever been blessed like you've been blessed. For thousands of years, God has made promises and people have longed. Prophets have talked about them. Righteous men have longed for the fulfillment of those promises. And Jesus is saying, I am the fulfillment. I am here. And you can hear from me. There is no greater privilege. You are blessed. You are more blessed than anyone. If you listen. Last week, we talked about how we as human beings, fallen human beings, we have this tendency uh, to divide people into two groups, to the insiders and into outsiders. What we see in this text is Jesus divides people as well, but the way he divides people is different. It's not according to their class, their wealth, their social standing, their race, their heritage. Jesus divides people into two groups, those who hear and understand his word and those who don't. Those who hear and understand and bear fruit, and those who hear but don't understand and don't really bear fruit. And this whole parable is about how we hear. Are we hearing? The word hear appears 18 times in these 23 verses. Jesus is trying to make a point. Now, I could ask you, do you hear God's word? Are you listening to God's word? And you might say yes or no. Like, that's a yes or no question. And this is where we get to the brilliance of the parables. Is Jesus doesn't want to let us just settle for yes or no answers. He tells stories because the stories challenge us. Parables are different than propositions. Propositions, like, do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? Yes, I do. And there's certainly a place for propositions in the church. But parables are different. They're often open-ended. They're interactive. They don't tell you what to believe. They force you to examine yourself. And in that way, they reveal not what it is we say we believe, 
think they reveal what it is we really believe. So as we, we press into this parable, it's not simply a way for us to categorize other people. He tells a story so that we might ask, where am I? What soil am I? Where do I fit? So that's the backdrop. Now, Jesus gives us a great gift with this parable. It's the first one, so he kind of puts some training wheels on it for us. And he says, I'll explain this one to you. He doesn't explain most of them. Most of them, he says it, lets it hang in the air, people are scratching their heads, and then he moves on. This one, he says, let me help you. And he tells us that there are four different ways people hear his message. So the seed that fell on the first soil, that was like, it was a path, it was... Dirt that had been compacted by years of people walking on it. And he says, hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. So he says, some people, the seed never pierces. The word of the kingdom never breaks in. It bounces. It skips. And then birds, Satan, like birds, comes in and snatches it away. This is the person who hears, but they never really hear. I'm sure there are a number of you who would fall into this category. You come to church regularly. You've heard the gospel explained. You might even be able to explain the gospel at one level to others, but it's never actually broken through into your life. It's never shaken the foundations of your life. It's never led you to say, I'm not going to live like this anymore, and I'm going to start living like this. The second soil, it's different than the first one because the seed actually pierces the second soil. The word begins to take root. The problem is the soil is rocky and it's shallow and... I think the picture here is like a, a thin layer of dirt that's almost like a veneer over a huge layer of limestone. And the seed, cannot, the seed can't grow deep roots. And so when the sun rises at noon and starts to really beat down on it, it scorches and burns the plant and it dies. Jesus tells us in, in verse 20, as for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while, and when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the world, immediately he falls away. So the person Jesus is describing here, it's a person who hears the word of the kingdom, hears the gospel, and responds to it at an emotional level. They receive it with joy, he says. And so this could be a person who you know, had an amazing worship experience at a church, and then there was an altar call, and they're crying, and they're just overwhelmed with emotion, and they come down, or they're at a youth camp or a youth event, and they're raising their hands, or they're standing up. They have this, they're like swept up in the moment, but it only lasts for a moment. Because they have a response, but then... Jesus says either trials or trouble or persecution emerge 
and their faith, which sprung up so quickly, withers and dies. Now, I, I did youth ministry for a number of years, and I, I saw this reality many, many times, where kids would have an emotional response to the gospel, they'd be overwhelmed, and then they'd go home, and their parents would immediately start challenging them. And normally it wasn't, how dare you believe in God? Most of the kids, parents were like, hey, I'm happy you believe in God. Wait a second, why are you reading the Bible? Did someone die? What, what are you doing? The God thing is important, but this is too important. As if the one who created us, there's something more important. You've got sports to attend to. Okay. But their parents would start pressing them. Maybe it was an overt mockery of their faith. Or maybe it was just the subtle jabs like, oh, you're, you're Mr. or Mrs. Religious now. And I watched the kids over time. They just slowly start backing away. I've seen it happen reverse. I've seen people in their 50s or 60s, sometimes their 40s, they encounter Jesus, but then it's, you know, sometimes it's their kids or it's their friends. It's like the persecution, the opposition, the cost of discipleship causes them to back away. Or Jesus says sometimes it's just tribulation, trials. Life gets hard. You were on the mountaintop and it was great. You came down from the mountain and every time you come down from any mountaintop, you're reminded that life on this earth is hard. And so they walk away. My guess is that the majority of Americans fall into this category. Stat, this is from a couple years ago, so I'm not sure if it's entirely accurate, but a couple years ago, 82% of Americans identified as Christians. Four out of five Americans identified basically as Christians. Now, four out of five of those, 80, 80% of those who identify as Christians in America don't believe in absolute moral truth. They don't believe that the church is essential. They give less than 1.5% of their money away, not just to the church, but to anything. And the majority of them don't believe in the Holy Spirit. Jesus knew nothing of a Christianity that didn't believe in the third member of the Trinity. He knew nothing of a Christianity that didn't lead people to generosity. He knew nothing of a Christianity that said, yes, I believe in God, but you can't actually say this is right and this is wrong. And yet that's where the majority of people in our country live. They had an experience, they can point back to it, and they have a false sense of comfort and security from that. But they don't have fruit. And their faith is more something that happened a while ago. It's not a living, breathing reality today. The third soil, the third place the seed landed was among thorns. And this soil was actually good. I mean, it's, weeds are growing there, so it's got to have some nutrients in it. Jesus tells us it takes roots, root, but the weeds choke the life out. And then he explains who he's talking about here. He says, as for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world 
and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. If the first soil was the hardened heart and the second soil was the shallow heart, this third soil we could call the divided heart. It takes root. It starts growing. But then the cares of this world could be translated as the anxieties of the age. All of the comings and goings in our life, all of the things on our calendar, all of the things on our to-do list, all of the present concerns we have for ourselves, for our kids, all of the, the news we get swept up in day in and day out, the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke it out. And embedded in that phrase, deceitfulness of riches, Jesus is saying, Money, it promises something that it can't deliver. It promises a security or a happiness that it can't deliver. But the promise is so appealing that people will actually let this desire continue to grow, the desire for more, continue to grow so that it actually starts to choke out their spiritual life. When I read this, that's the one that challenges me. I've got a lot of cares. I've got a lot of things that I think, man, our life would be better if we were here or this happened. I've got a lot of things that compete for my attention and my energy, and I'm guessing a lot of you feel this too. If you're here this morning, I'm guessing a lot of you feel this, that we have a lot of things that creep in all the time and are trying to choke out our faith, robbing the nutrients, the the attention, the time, our affections, what we love. I think of all the unfruitful soils, this one was probably the most miserable. The first one, they're not miserable. They don't know the difference. The seed bounces off their back. They're like, what was that? I don't know. I'll get back to my day. The second one, Man, they had a cool emotional experience and some level of like eternal security or whatever. They're like, I'm good. The third one, though, I mean, it's choking out. Slow, painful process. You know enough, you know enough to know that money and stuff isn't going to make you happy. And yet your life is still totally shaped by the pursuit of money. You know enough that you can't add a single hour to your life by worrying, and yet you're worrying all the time. And what it does, when, when this concern for money and all of our cares of this world, what they do is they crowd out life of the kingdom that we actually don't produce fruit. We don't produce a fruit of righteousness in our life, a harvest of righteousness, because we're so divided all of the time. It's challenging. So you have the, the hardened heart, the shallow heart, the divided heart, and then you come to the fourth one. Jesus says, As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case a hundredfold, and another sixty, and another thirty. And I find it fascinating that this, the good soil is the one with the briefest description. Jesus is like, oh, and then there were some that fell on good soil 
and it just produced a ton of fruit. Like it shows us the power of the word, the power of the, the gospel, that if it can just be allowed to, to grow in a person's heart, there's going to be so much fruit. If you can just, I mean, the seed did nothing. It just fell there and it laid there. And then over time, it produced a massive harvest. He who has ears, let, let them hear. So there are two invitations. They're challenging invitations, but they're invitations nonetheless that I want to put before you in light of this. Number one, I think the first invitation is quite simply to put yourself under the word. Put yourself under Christ's word. The, the difference between the fruitful plant and the unfruitful, there's only one difference. We saw it in verse 23. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. The other three heard. They didn't understand. And understand there, it doesn't just mean they intellectually grasped what was saying. Understand that word it literally means to put things together. The person who understands is the one who brings what they're hearing to bear on their life. And it shapes their life. They understand. Maybe a better way of saying it is they stand under it. They hear it. They receive it as authority. And then they live according to it. Jesus is saying that the great dividing line for all people is, are they hearing and standing under his word? Are they pressing in? Are they constantly saying, okay, how does what he say here come to bear on my life at this moment in this place and time? And it's challenging, but it's also really simple. There's a simplicity here. Being fruitful it's not complicated. He doesn't say like, well, you have to climb this spiritual ladder. You have to memorize. He just says, no, you just sit there and you let the word, the power of the word wash over you. It's simple. It's challenging, but it's not complicated. And this is what Jesus teaches in John 15. He says, I'm the vine, you're the branches. He says, the essence of the Christian life it's not going out and achieving a bunch of things on your own. The essence of the Christian life is you just abide in me. You just stay connected to me. You just constantly feed on my word. And he says, anyone who abides, they're going to bear fruit. But he also says, every branch that does not bear fruit is cut off and thrown into the fire. And that's an intense passage. And, you know, I don't, I'm always very hesitant to talk about people's eternal destinies because that's not my call, that's Jesus' call. But something I never noticed until this week is Jesus goes out of the way in the parable of the sower to make it really clear that the seed that fell in the first three soils, it, none of them bore fruit. Not one of them. He doesn't say that their fruit wasn't very good or it was deformed, he was like, they were all unfruitful. And then in John 15, he says, every branch that doesn't bear fruit is cut off 
think there's a real warning here. You put yourself in the shoes of his disciples and his fans back 2,000 years ago. You're sitting on the beach and you're hearing this. And you realize there's one of two choices you make. You either, you either put yourself under his word or you don't. Those are the choices. You're no longer able just to say, like, he's a motivational speaker and he's interesting and I kind of like some of his stuff on this. It's either I'm going to put myself under, let this shape my life, or I'm going to walk away. And that's what we see again and again in the Gospels. People either walking away or leaving everything. This is a hard text. It's a challenging text. It's a text filled with warning. And this warning, it shouldn't stir paralyzing anxiety in us, but it should stir a deep sobriety in us. It shouldn't make us ask, do I have enough fruit? What is my fruit? I mean, that's good. Those are good questions. But some of you, you have very sensitive consciences and you already struggle to believe that God loves you and so you hear something like this and you immediately go to all of your failures or how you really blew it this week or the big sin in your life or whatever it is. And I just want you to, I want you to see, while this is challenging, this isn't opposed to grace at all. Jesus didn't say that the good soil is the one who works really, really hard and is more moral, more disciplined, no, he says it's the one who put himself under his word. I mean, the Pharisees, they were so righteous. They were too righteous in a sense. He calls them a brood of vipers. Why? Because they're not coming under his word. This isn't an opposition to grace. This is the way of grace. The way of grace is you get near to Jesus and you stay near to him. It's not climbing a ladder you stay. I always find it comforting. Like what I do when I'm challenged by passages like this, I remember who was there. I'm like, oh, the disciples were there. And for me, that's a huge encouragement because their flaws are painted clearly for us in the gospels. And I'm like, the disciples were there. Peter was there. And so it's not even just that you, you have to put yourself under the word perfectly because Peter didn't do that. Peter spent Three years with him, day and night, Jesus keeps telling him, I'm going to go die. 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 Soldiers show up, and he pulls out a sword and cuts off one of their ears. It's like, I got him, Jesus. <laughs> so he, he obviously didn't understand everything, but he also kept pressing in. And he received the rebuke, and he received the challenge. And he stepped into opportunities to grow. And Jesus was abounding in grace towards him and restoring him. So I, I want to challenge you. I especially want to challenge the teenagers in the room this morning. Those in their early 20s. You've grown up around the church. Like you, you can't, nobody's born a Christian is what I want you to hear. Your parents might be faithful followers of Jesus. They might bring you to church. They might teach you. But eventually the day comes where you have to decide, do I want to put my life under his word or do I not? You can't live off your parents' faith. You can't live off of other people's faith. Eventually you have to make the decision. 
am I going to put my life under his word? And you, you're going to have the whole world, this crazy world, which is filled with so much foolish, foolishness. They're going to tell you that that's not the way to life. But you just trace out all of the paths that they tell you that lead to life. Money, success, celebrity, sex, you name it. Just, just look at people who seem to have gotten that and where their lives end up. This is the way to life, but you have to make the decision. Your parents can't do it for you. We all have to make this decision. So the first invitation is to put yourself under the word. The second is to stay there to persevere with patience. Fruitfulness, all it took for fruitfulness was just the conditions to remain the same. <laughs> it's kind of awesome. I mean, that's grace right there. He didn't say, here's all the things to do. He said, just stay close, and eventually you're going to bear a lot of fruit. Now, this is hard for us. I mean, I love in Luke's version of the parable, uh, he records Jesus as saying, Matthew didn't include this, but he says those in the fourth soil, they bear fruit with patience. You will bear fruit, just not instantly. You know, apples, they don't pop from the ground the minute you throw seeds in them. It takes a lot of time. Like This is one of the hardest lessons for my kids. Anytime we eat something with seeds in it, they go outside, they plant it, and then the next day, anyone else, kids? Next day, they're out there. Where's the water bellows? Like, I wish it worked like that, kid. It won't happen in an instant. But there will be a harvest. And the key to a harvest of righteousness is to persevere. Now, Jesus tells us why it's going to be so hard to persevere. One, Satan comes and tries to snatch the word away. And, and I feel very confident that God has saved me and he loves me and I don't feel like I fit into that first category at all, but sometimes I definitely feel like the word of God just skips off me. Sometimes I definitely feel like the word comes and Satan snatches it away before I can really comprehend it. So we've got that opposition. We've got the opposition of people in this world. People who will mock us for our faith. We've got the trials of life. We've got the concerns of life. We've got the deceitfulness of wealth. All of these things challenge us. All of these things are threats. And Jesus says, if you can block those out and you stay near, the fruit will come. Perseverance is what he's calling us to here. If you find yourself in that fourth soil, be encouraged. I think another thing he's warning us about here is Hey, and don't get too discouraged when people that you were running with for a long time in the Christian faith, they're not running with you anymore. Don't get too, too discouraged if you see people who seem to respond and then they fall away. He gives us these warnings to say, listen, it's going to be hard. There are going to be people who never hear, people who briefly hear, and people who always kind of hear, but their life doesn't change. Don't be shocked by it. Just keep your hand to the plow. Perseverance, it, it requires not just an awareness of all of the things that threaten us. Perseverance, it also requires countless mid-course corrections in life. This is what I mean, put yourself under the word. Putting yourself under the word means when you read the word 
and the Spirit convicts you of something in your life, you don't drown it out. Where you recognize this is a sin and I have to deal with this. Not because this particular sin is like more damnable than any other one, but because God's Spirit is bringing conviction and I need to respond. See, when we don't do that, we don't do it here, then we don't do it here. Next thing you know, our life is just so far from what Christ's desire for us is. I can tell you, like, one of the hardest parts of being a Christian for me over, I guess it's 25 years now, maybe a little longer, is seeing so many people leave the faith. And people talk about people who fall away. I don't like that phrase. Fall away makes it seem like they were, like, chasing hard after Jesus, and then they slipped on the side of a cliff and just disappeared. Like, that's not what happens. What happens is people slowly walk away. It's like they slow, it's always gradual and over time, at least in my experience. There's a word from Hebrews 3. It's a warning. This passage in particular, I just haven't been able to shake it this week. The author of Hebrews. He warns us against that walking slowly away. He says, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God, but exhort one another every day, every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts in the rebellion, as you did in the rebellion. The author there is not giving a warning to non-Christians. He's talking to people who identify as Christians. And he's saying you've got to take care, you've got to be on guard. And if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. And so, I know we're on all different places in life, in our spiritual journey. God would be saying very different things to every single one of us. But if you hear his voice today, respond. You can respond in prayer. You can respond by grabbing someone you're close with and confessing. Maybe it's some big scandalous sin that you're terrified, or maybe it's just like, my heart's grown cold. But don't harden your heart. And one of the gifts, because you showed up this morning, one of the gifts is every time we gather, we're exhorting one another. Every, every Sunday when we gather, that's what we're doing. We're reminding ourselves of where true life is found. And every time we come to the Lord's table, we're reminding ourselves that salvation is not something we accomplish. And that all of these warnings, it's not about how we live a life that will make God love us. They're instead warnings where Jesus is saying, I've given my life for you. You abide in me. When we come to the table, we're remind, reminded of Jesus Christ. The night before his crucifixion, he took a loaf of bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body broken for you. And then he took the cup and he said, this is the cup of the new covenant of my blood poured out for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Communion is such an important part of my life. We talk about mid-course corrections once a week. This is a chance for me to say, wait a second, what's going on? What am I not addressing? It's 
a time for me to say, Lord, speak. Your servant's listening. And then to respond, not trying to earn his love, but because we have it. So if you're here and you're a Christian, we encourage you to come and to feast upon what Christ has done for you. If you're here and you're not a Christian, we ask that you not take part in this meal, but instead you hear and you seek understanding. Let me pray. I'm Kevin Jameson, lead pastor at Sojourn East. Thanks for listening. For more sermons, info about our church, and ways you can support the ministry of Sojourn East, visit sojournchurch.com east.